Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. The economist Milton Friedman wrote in 1970 that a firm's sole responsibility is to its shareholders. As such, the goal of the firm is to maximise returns to shareholders. Wind forward 50 years and with the proliferation of ESG, ethical and indeed impact investing, does the Friedman doctrine still hold true today? Well, this week on the podcast, we tackle this question, among other questions, with my guest Charlotte Young, fund manager of the Trojan Ethical Fund and assistant fund manager on the Trojan Fund. In addition to this, she founded a charity called GAIN, which is an acronym for Girls Are Investors. Its aim is to promote and inspire girls to get into the investment industry. Charlotte was a brilliant guest, and this is a wide-ranging conversation. I really enjoyed chatting to her. Charlotte's also a brilliant writer. She has a very clear way of thinking about her stocks. I'm a big fan of her monthly, which is available at the Troy Asset Management website. Do also check out the GAIN website, spelt G-A-I-N-U-K dot org. But without further ado, this is the Wireless Podcast. Charlotte Young, welcome to the podcast. Charlotte, how did you start your career? Hi, Doug. Um, thanks. So the career started, I guess, with a lot of people in this industry, sort of by chance. I was studying Latin and French at university, which a lot of people probably don't directly associate with becoming a fund manager and probably thought I'd go into law, but wanted some some relevant corporate experience. And I wasn't particularly good at, at waitressing during the summer. So looked for something that might uh, give me some, some experience in the corporate world as well. And ended up very fortunately, I, in hindsight, I don't think I realized how lucky I was, but I did an internship at what is now Stuart Investors at the time was first date in Edinburgh and just really, really loved meeting with companies and working on a team which was, and I think it quite uniquely in this industry, a really dynamic group of individuals who were all just absolutely obsessed with investing. And really, it was quite infectious. It was a really amazing environment mm-hmm. to have your first experience in, and I should mention that it was in the summer of 2008 as well. So there was a lot going on and I never really looked back from there. And that was that was the first experience. And did you sort of wind about before then, did you think that you were going to pursue a career in investment management, maybe when you're at school and when you're at university? Uh, no, absolutely not. At school, I thought I might be a lawyer, uh, but my mother actually was a fund manager and I think slightly rebelliously, I was decided that, that that probably wouldn't be for me. And I think I also thought completely wrongly that it was probably quite a run-of-the-mill job. You know, there are lots of female fund managers and actually I would do something different. And I had no idea that actually in the 1980s, which was when my mother was working, when she started in fund management, that was incredibly pioneering as a minority to be doing that. So no, I definitely did not have any preconceptions about joining this industry. I see. And it sounds like, I mean, you joined at quite a tumultuous time in 2008. Um, What experiences maybe in your formative years of investing have most impacted your approach today? Yeah. So I think that was a very good time, firstly, just to capture your attention, because 
there was so much going on. And I think you could be forgiven for thinking that, well, uh, another week, uh, another Lehman Brothers collapsing. This is quite, this is all quite vivid and, and this is normal. But I think in terms of lessons learned from that time, there was a very, very good moment where actually in the autumn of 2008, I decided having loved this internship at First Date that I wanted to go and do another one at a small firm. And I sort of was able to see how different funds were doing. And in particular, uh, Troy, where I now work, but also Ruffer, where I started my career, they both made money in 2008. And it was a great time to be looking for your future employer, because it's really hard to weed out the goats from the sheep when everything's doing well. But in that year, that was a pretty impressive result when the market was down a third. So I definitely learned the value of, of capital preservation. And I didn't really know anything else. I was sort of lucky in that respect because First State as well, they had a really grown up approach to looking after people's money. It was it was all about being cautious and taking risks when you're paid to. And it was just a, a really good time, I think, to be looking for what sort of company you want to work for. That's interesting. I mean, do you think when you look around maybe in your peers, do you think you probably sit more at the cautious end of as an investor? as a result of your experience in 2008 and more on the sort of capital preservation rather than sort of return seeking investor? Capital preservation, for sure. And so that's really what drew me to both Ruffer and Troy. And at Troy, I work on the Trojan Fund. So I'm the assistant fund manager on the Trojan Fund. And I know we're going to probably come on to that in a bit more detail. I, I run the Trojan Ethical Fund. And the mandate of that is capital preservation. So absolutely. Mm. I, but you sort of, suggested that return seekers are also a different group from those looking to preserve capital. I think it's it's a question of priority. I think what we're trying to do is think about avoiding losing money first. But once you've done that, you then look for where the returns are and if you're being paid to take risk. So it's not either or, but it's not returns at any cost. So you've introduced the Trojan Ethical Fund, of which you are the manager. What's the purpose of the Trojan Ethical Fund and um, what's its investment objective? So the purpose and why we set it up, so it's now just over two years old, and we set it up because uh, investors in the Trojan Fund, which is the sort of flagship fund at Troy, it's been around for 20 years, to, almost to the day, and it was set up to look after, initially, uh, the money of one family, so the Weinstock family, and preserve it for future generations. And that really set the tone for what it was trying to do. So that very clear, don't lose my money mandate was given to Sebastian, with whom I work on the Trojan Fund, Sebastian Lyon. And that is ultimately what all investors in the Trojan Fund and the Trojan Ethical Fund are looking for. And we set up the ethical version, particularly for charities and other investors, lots of family investors in the Trojan Fund who wanted access to that same type of return. So the similar return profile to the Trojan Fund, but ultimately they wanted an ethical screen. So they wanted to avoid exposure to certain controversial sectors. And so really, that is the difference between the two. It's that ethical screen that ultimately drives the difference 
and everything else, we're thinking about the same thing. We're thinking about capital preservation and achieving it via the same asset classes as well, which are equities, bonds, gold and cash. And tell me what the difference in your mind is between an ethical screen or an ethical investment fund and ESG investing. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point to make. So actually, what's a lot more interesting, the ethical screen is binary. So it screens out certain sectors. So in practice, we don't invest in those anyway at Troy because we don't think they make good investments. So the Trojan Fund doesn't invest in fossil fuel companies, but the Trojan Ethical Fund also doesn't because it can't. In practice, there are two, so alcohol and tobacco, that are in the Trojan Fund that can't be in the Ethical Fund. Um, ESG investing is not binary. It's not, and it shouldn't be, quantitative. But it's absolutely crucial, particularly to our mandate. So we're incredibly long-term. We look to own a company when we're buying it. We intend to own it for at least five to 10 years. And we're really looking for companies that are built to last. We're looking for that capital preservation characteristic. And so if you're looking for that and you have a long-term view, you absolutely must be on the right side of environmental change and social impact. So for us, there's, there's a business imperative to look at ESG, but it's never black and white. And I think that's the most important thing with ESG. This this whole thing is, you know, everyone talks about a journey, but it really is. It's, it's just work in progress for every single company. No company is white and no company is black. There's this huge spectrum of gray and some companies are moving faster and in a better direction than others. And it's really about finding those companies, not because you have a moral imperative to do it. Yes, there are really clear moral arguments to hold businesses to account. But ultimately, and this is just because of the way the world's going, there's just a a business imperative to do it and to do it properly. And really, it's factoring that into your decision making. And we do it for the ethical fund in exactly the same way that we do it for the Trojan fund, because there's a return imperative. If you want to generate the best returns, you need to think about the long-term factors. And, And one of those, and very important one of those, is what a company's carbon footprint is, how they're thinking about their social impact, how they're thinking about diversity. If they're not doing the right things on all of those counts, the bottom line will probably suffer. But there's also a slightly less tangible aspect to it, which is if a company's behind on that, then what else are they missing? Is it quite a slow and undynamic management team generally? if they're not on the front foot with ESG. And tell me, I mean, this maybe is a a sensitive question, but if you're screening out certain industries, so let's take fossil fuels, your example, does that stop you being part of the change? So if you're an investor in some of these fossil fuel companies, I mean, they arguably are going to be part of the change to a greener, more sustainable future. Isn't there an argument to stay invested and put pressure on as an investor? Totally. So I think there's there's a huge debate at the moment about divestment. Does divestment solve the problem? No, it doesn't. And you have to look at every company and say, well, okay, if I divest, I extract myself from the conversation and I stop holding you, whether it's an oil company or whether it's a, a business that just has a huge plastics waste contribution. And actually, you know, a lot of our consumer staples companies, they are 
producers of plastic packaging. Um, so do I just disengage and therefore leave it up to someone else with perhaps less of a, an eye on these things to then hold a much less accountable conversation? And I, I agree with you. It's not about necessarily just divesting. However, and I just because you mentioned fossil fuels, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that we should be, we certainly don't have a fiduciary duty to be philanthropic about this and, and hold all the bad companies on the journey to being renewable or changing their business models if it doesn't make financial sense to do so. And the reason I pick up on the fossil fuels businesses is they are going to have to change their business models entirely in order to be able to be carbon neutral. So along the journey, there's a lot of investment. And do you really want to be an investor for that? Maybe you do. And, and I really hope <laughs> that there are people out there who will take on that, that mantle because we need it as a society. Ultimately, I think regulation is, is going to be a big driver alongside investor input, particularly in the energy sector. But the financial return piece isn't clear to me for those companies. So I don't think, I think that's beyond the core of duty and fiduciary duty to be doing that. But yes, what you say is absolutely right for a whole host of sectors. And along the way, we can make, I, I believe, um, some good returns for investors. Now, you've drawn a pretty good distinction between ethical investing and ESG. Where do you think ethical investing stops and impact investing starts? It's a very good question. I think the definition of impact is evolving quite helpfully so that I think in the future, we'll just talk about all investment being impact. Because if you think about what impact is, it's is your action having a direct effect on the world? And that's the case for all of us as investors. We're investing in companies that are interacting with their environments, are having an effect on their communities. And we as an investor have a role to play in asking them about that and making sure that they're doing the right things and, and holding them accountable. So I don't think there's going to be such a distinction in the future. And actually, particularly with the development of the Sustainable Development Goals and ultimately mapping companies' impact in, in that very, very helpful framework, I think investors are starting to realise, OK, we have a direct impact. And that's really exciting because ultimately this job, we can see not just, you know, the results on the end investors, which, you know, I know Waverton do a huge amount of actually speaking to the end investor. And we understand as well, you know, what they want and how this can change their life if we get it right. But then there's a second dimension, which is how the companies that we own can also have a, a positive impact on the world. And I think you just got to take that as part of your responsibility now as an investor. And it's, it's definitional. There are so many different ways to cut and slice this industry, but impact is everywhere. So I think those narrow definitions will mm. cease to exist. Thinking about stakeholders and as opposed to just sort of the, the one-dimensional view of shareholders, what's driving this change towards ethical investing? Do you think it's coming from A, the, the customers of these companies, B, the managers of the companies, C, the, the investors, like you, you know, you and I, 
or D, I suppose, government? I mean, who do you think is driving this change? And perhaps a second question, who's, what's the most effective driver of change? I think it's everything. I think it's all coming to a head and helpfully it's coming from all angles. So as you say, it's, it's all of those different dimensions. It's regulators putting more pressure on companies, but regulators are also being driven by their electorates. Uh, so that's the consumer as well. And then investors are realizing, hang on, this because of those two things, this also matters for us. We, we don't have a moral mandate. We can't just superimpose our own ethics on our investing. What we do have a, a mandate to do is think about, right, where are the returns going to be? And the, the, the fact that the consumer is going to demand a more ethical product and the government is going to penalize those companies that aren't doing the right thing, um, it's just making investment sense to do it. And so you are actually seeing that feed into the ratings, the valuations for companies that are doing it right. So there's opportunity, but also a derating for the companies that are doing it wrong. And so I don't necessarily think it's not something that is going to be resolved without any of those parties. But as investors, I think what's quite exciting now is that we can say, okay, we can actually have a huge impact on these companies. And, and by engaging and voting your shares, but also monitoring those businesses on an ongoing way and have a, con a constructive dialogue. And we're seeing this just as, you know, we're not going to be the top 10 investors necessarily in any company, but because we hold all of our shares for a pretty long time, we do our homework, we ask questions, which I think management tend to like, because we've actually thought about it and we're asking about the next 10 years, we get pretty good traction uh, with the companies that we engage with. And, and that's incredibly rewarding because then you can see, okay, that they're looking at their remuneration policy. They're actually integrating ESG factors into that. Okay, well, how can we monitor this? How can we measure it? And that's going to be the next thing is actually getting this all into data that everybody can understand and then say, right, this is where you were three years ago. We want to see this in the next five years, and we're going to track you. So there's a big job for investors to do to make this all intelligible and clearly helping companies do that because ultimately they are, I think, more than any time in my career, listening and asking investors for advice, saying, right, what, what do you want to see? What matters? We'll give you that information. So there's just a huge amount more work for us to do as part of, as you said, that much wider input from consumers and regulators as well. I mean, is there an argument here, Charlotte, for active managers? And, you know, the active versus passive debate continues to rumble on. But if you have actively managed funds, managed by fund managers like yourself, who take an interest and indeed vote on policies that the board put forward, isn't this the strong argument for active management, as opposed to just naively allocating to passive strategies that perhaps don't fulfil this? Totally. If, if you can say, we'll sell our shares if we don't, and you can ultimately vote with your feet, that's a lot more powerful. And I think also, it's not just active, but it's also being long term. You, you don't really have that same power if you're trading in and out of things. But if you're holding something for 10 years, then ultimately, you can be there to see the change and to make sure it's in the shape that you want it to be or, or keep holding management and nudging them in, in the right direction. So absolutely. And I think, you know, you've kind of touched on a point, which is 
this sort of existential question around active management. And it's actually a big reason, I think, that a lot of people potentially aren't attracted to the industry. They think, well, what role can we play? And what, you know, if I'm going to invest my ISA, do I really want to be backing an active manager who's charging me a fee versus, you know, just blindly investing in a group of companies? But actually, I think that those investors are starting to see, okay, if I can align myself with the way that not only a fund manager invests, but also that part of their process, which is speaking to the businesses and making sure that my shares are doing some good, then I think that's a really attractive selling point for individuals who are just thinking a little bit more consciously about where to put their capital. Do you think if Milton Friedman was alive today, who famously said the only objective and responsibility for a business is to maximize profit? If he was alive today, would he be adjusting that philosophy, I wonder? I think so. But also, I I don't really think that you need to choose here for the point you made Mm. earlier, that this is where the money is going. So you're not going to have a license to operate if you don't behave well. And that's kind of what it boils down to. So profits are going to accrue to those businesses that are on the front foot with all of this. So, I mean, you're just in the most basic form, carbon pricing. If you're incredibly carbon intensive and you're not doing anything about it, then that's going to hurt your margins because Hmm. there is going to be a carbon pricing system coming down the pipe. And so you're going to have to pay for that. And companies that go green earlier, they won't. So there'll be a direct link between profits and how green you are. So I I actually don't really think that it's an either or. But there is this, this sort of triple bottom line, as you've sort of alluded to, where mm. companies are going to be measured not just by the profit today, but also by this wider view of, okay, how am I treating all of my stakeholders? And that's actually potentially often not in the numbers today or in the next few quarters, but that's a measure of value that actually at Troy, we always really look for that kind of between the lines value that will accrue over the next decade. It's something that's quite hard to quantify, but ultimately it's investing in a company's future. So I think it's a very, very helpful lens now that all investors, I think, in time, particularly as we get accounting that incorporates impact, all investors are going to be able to measure how businesses are doing on on that wider front, not just on next quarter's earnings. But I think Milton Friedman would actually find this incredibly well aligned with his philosophy. Final question on ethical investing. How do you assess the ethics of some of the larger tech names? And I'm thinking of the the Facebooks and the Alphabets, whose business really relies on taking quite a lot of data from their, their customers and pushing down you know, adverts. Do you take an ethical view on that? Can you take an ethical view on that? And if so, would you have to negatively screen as a result? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is the ethical screens don't screen out big tech or, you know, anything that's linked to that. But this is an ESG question. And this is, you know, is this a material risk for these businesses? Yes, it is. And are they doing the right things? And I I think it kind of comes back to, okay, well, how do these companies begin? How do they start? And actually their approach to advertising, which is fascinating looking through the history. So 
take Alphabet, for example, they initially were highly resistant to putting ads onto any of their platforms. They obviously had this mandate, this um, objective of cataloging the world's information and making it useful for the users. And they really didn't care about the monetization piece. Or initially, they didn't care and they didn't really didn't want to mess up the user experience. There's this great um, book, actually, I'd recommend it, called In the Plex by Stephen Levy. And it really catalogs that whole history of Alphabet from the very beginning. And there's this great scene where Marissa Mayer is ultimately assessing whether they're going to put ads into Gmail. And she says, look, it's really not what we do. Um, Let's not do it. And someone says, "Okay, well, I'll just give you a test run and see if you like it. And she goes into a Gmail and she's going hiking that weekend and she sees some ads for hiking boots. And her reaction, which I think is aligned with the reaction of the average and I don't want to stereotype here, but the average millennial probably today was, hmm, okay, that's quite useful. That's quite interesting. I'll click on that ad and actually I might buy that because that's adding value for my experience. And that was sort of the gateway to them putting useful ads based on information to make it relevant onto their platforms. So I don't think this model of advertising per se has any ethical dilemma with it. Mm-hmm. What's really important, and you've pointed to, is the privacy of the data. And I think in particular, Facebook has clearly historically fallen foul of that. The regulation, frankly, has been way behind the whole industry of big tech. And that's the root of this problem is that they've just moved so quickly and that the regulator just hasn't been able to keep up. But these companies are ultimately investing themselves ahead of what's mandated. And in so doing, they are the best placed because they have the firepower. Alphabet's got over $100 billion on its balance sheet. They've got the firepower to actually create the safest tools and the safest precautions against a violation of, of data. So I think they're moving in the right direction. It's, it's clearly an ongoing risk, um, but it's one that you know is right at the top of the regulator's priority list. And they are in the lens of scrutiny. So I think it's only moving positively. Positively for society as a whole, negatively perhaps in terms of cost of doing business for the tech names themselves. Cost of doing business for them, yes, they are investing more behind it. I actually think the more relevant increase in cost is for the smaller firms. It's actually increasing the barriers to entry and the barriers mm-hmm. to operating in that business because you ultimately do have to have that firepower and also have that first party data. That's really important. And clearly, if you've got your own platforms and Facebook is sort of preeminent example of this, but obviously also Alphabet, if you've got that data and you don't need to use cookies to follow someone elsewhere on the web, then you're going to be able to comply. And so I think it does put them at a even stronger advantage versus smaller competitors. Charlotte, I want to switch tag and for you to take your Troy hat off and put your GAIN hat on. Now, GAIN stands for Girls Are Investors. What is GAIN and what's the purpose of GAIN? Yeah, so GAIN's a charity. Um, We set it up a couple of years ago, a few of us in the industry, women uh, in the industry, you might be unsurprised to hear. And it has the objective, ultimate objective, of redressing this gender imbalance that woefully persists in fund management in particular. 
but we're trying to do it from the ground up. So we're trying to inspire people at university and sixth form age to take an interest in investing and ultimately pursue a career. And we inform and inspire that next generation. That is our mandate. And that's something that we've been doing now for over a year and a half, effectively rolling out presentations, panel discussions, workshops to young women between the ages of 16 and 21. And also, pleasingly, lots of of young men who attend our talks, particularly at the school age. And ultimately, through these presentations or through a really helpful discussion with some pretty high-powered panellists. I should mention we've got 400 volunteers now as part of our GAIN network. So we have amazing and not just incredibly talented women, but also men who care deeply about this issue, presenting and providing role models for young women who, when we surveyed them at the start of the charity, we did a survey of this demographic to find out if they were interested in the career at all, and if not, why not? And the answer was, yeah, not really interested. And the reasons are, don't have that many role models. And also, I don't really know what it is. What is investing? Why does it impact me? And why should I care? And so we really just set ourselves the mission of taking the lid off what it means to be a fund manager and explaining, okay, it's not just sitting behind a screen all day looking at spreadsheets and you don't necessarily have to have studied economics at university but what you do need to be is intellectually curious and you do need to care about the world and you have to be interested in business and actually we'll tell you why all that stuff is incredibly fascinating and ultimately makes for a really rewarding career and it's just getting that level of understanding and we found pretty unavoidable enthusiasm if once you do understand it and then encouraging these women to apply and our hope is really that this application rate which is currently around 20% female at the graduate level for investment decision making roles that's that's the area we're focused on decision making that 20% that really needs to move up if we're going to talk about 50% at the senior fund management level So actually in senior investment decision-making roles, which is currently a 10% female representation, we're never going to get to 50% if that 20% persists at the application stage. And other than role models in the industry, what are the other reasons in your mind for such a low application rate? Do you think it starts sort of even younger at, at school level? It does. It definitely does. There are so many reasons. And I think just starting on this, the application, the reason why people don't apply in the first place. If you can't see it, you can't be it. So that's the the role model thing. And often, I think young men are encouraged to take an interest in part because all the good investment books, and there are a few exceptions, but they are the absolute minority. All the very high profile investment books have been written by men. And that's fine. Um, I've enjoyed reading them. I think I would have enjoyed it even more if they'd been written by women and someone that I could actually really relate to and see myself becoming. I think that's really important, but it's also, it's so much. I mean, there's women are taught to be interested in, in different things from an early age. And, you know, if your investment club at school is all blokes, then you're probably not going to go along. I mean, you might do. And, and often we have these amazing exceptions and I will talk about them. We have ambassadors who are students at university who tell their fellow 
female students about gain and about this career. And often they are the ones who actually were reading the FT when they were 15 and running the school investment club and against all of the odds, like really pursuing this career in spite of all the barriers that continue to exist. But they do continue to exist. And it's it's about changing that mentality and getting into schools is a, a really helpful way that we can do that. Because often, and this when we started GAIN, we did a, a university talk, which we entitled Next Generation Female Investors at Cambridge. And in spite of advertising it in that way, we got majority male attendees, which is fine. And we're delighted that they were willing to come and listen to us speak. But ultimately, women are are ruling themselves out from a very early age. Um, So we need to change that. But to answer your question in full, which I can't do here because it's so multifaceted, and I don't want to be reductive about it in a way that unfortunately so many people are because they point to some one specific thing. And often with women, it's, oh, well, women want to go and have babies and they don't want to come back to the workforce, which, you know, in a minority of cases in fund management probably is true. But actually, there are so many things that need to be fixed in order for us to solve that retention piece. So retaining women as they go through their careers. And ultimately, it's a bit of a vicious circle problem, because if you go into a room and every day you are in the minority, I think that's going to make you want to leave ultimately. So we do need to solve this by getting more women into this industry. So it's a little bit chicken and egg. But I think, you know, early days, gain is not only having huge amount of traction with thousands and thousands of students who have watched and attended our panel discussions and presentations, but also the inadvertent benefit of gain is we're actually connecting up lots of women who are incredibly successful in this industry and saying, okay, you might not have that many female colleagues, but look, uh, there are loads of relatable people out there that you can catch up with at a gain event and ultimately make that connection. And I think that feeling of solidarity is quite important when you're going through what can be quite an isolated experience in a very, very male dominated industry. Thinking about it from a practical point of view and thinking about, you know, what makes what are you looking for when you're trying to build a, a team of good investors or even a team of, or, or an investment committee? Really, I suppose you're looking for a diversity of opinion. And that is, you're not going to get that if you all come from exactly the same place and you can't all come from the, exactly the same gender. So which side of the fence do you stand on when it comes to positive discrimination and quotas at investment committee level? The first point you made, which is that there's data to show that diverse teams make better decisions. And it's not just gender diversity. That's what we're focusing on in our sort of small and and trying to get this right part of our remit in in gain. But it's socioeconomic, it's ethnic, and it cuts across all different ways. It's just clear that there's a business case for it. So how do you get there? I think you, you get there ideally not by quotas, although I can see in certain circumstances, that's the only way to get there. But in an ideal world, you get everyone to look at the data and wake up to the business case and think, right, we're going to do better if we have more women, if we have more ethnic diversity. And I think often, and this is sometimes the reasons that quotas have to be brought in, is people don't realise when they're doing the interviewing or trying to select candidates, they don't think about how that person could be additive to the team as a whole, 
when perhaps they, like for like, don't seem to be the most proficient candidate against the rest. So let's just take, for example, everyone gets the same numerical test and all the guys get eight out of 10. And let's say there are two female candidates and one gets seven and one gets five. But actually within that five and that seven that they each got right, the two that everybody else got wrong, they answered correctly. And if you were to add them both into the team, there would then be two people who understood that 20% of stuff that all the blokes didn't understand. And that makes the team stronger as a whole. So it's really about solving for that, you know, what's actually going to strengthen your overall investment process. And I think that would help to understand that for everybody to just to overcome some of these potentially unconscious biases, but also this sort of thinking of, right, we need to get the person who's getting everything right, or perhaps the person, you know, with the most investment experience. And quite often we find that young women perhaps have less investment experience because they're not applying for internships. At the same time, again, we're, we're trying to address that and we're providing a lot of internships through our partner firms. Um, but yeah, it's really thinking a little bit outside the box when it comes to recruitment. Now, final question, Charlotte, what advice would you give to the graduates who are coming out of university, the analysts, the associates who are kind of probably two or three years into their career in investment management? What advice would you give to them in terms of the skills that they need to be great analysts great associates and in future great fund managers? Yeah, there's so much, but I do think this constant appetite for learning is is a really important one because there are lots of really smart, and we see this particularly, you know, at the university age, you're used to completing the module and learning everything there is to know about a subject and becoming the expert and getting your grade and job done. And I suppose with this career is it's, you know, you can't ever rest on your laurels because the world's changing all the time and it's changing pretty rapidly. So you have to be prepared to keep learning and you have to enjoy that. That sort of curiosity all the time is just sort of almost, I think, the most central characteristic of every good fund manager that I've met. And with it comes a humility that you won't know everything, but you don't need to know everything as well. There's there's also And I've definitely learned this from starting as an analyst and wanting to know absolutely everything about a company and looking back at every single annual report, um, be able to answer any question and and forecast what they're going to do. And and you just you'll never get there. It's about working out what you need to know. And a colleague of mine told me this very early on, and it couldn't have been better guidance, just working that out first and distilling the investment case to its essential parts is almost the most valuable thing that you can do at that analyst stage because ultimately the fund manager really doesn't care about the minutiae that aren't going to drive the bottom line. It's what really moves the needle that counts. Charlotte Young, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Doug, for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Charlotte Young, fund manager from Troy Asset Management. If you've enjoyed this show or indeed the series, why not like it or subscribe to it? And we really appreciate it if you let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy 
or an offer to sell a security. 